This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert, and I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert. And I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. So what do people get when they listen to The Late Show Pod Show? Let's, let's sell this thing. The extended moments, for sure, because we run out of time for broadcast, but we have plenty of time on the podcast. It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm Kellyanne Taylor, and this is the Radio Times podcast. Every week, I sit down with a celebrity guest from the world of TV or film to talk about their lives, both on and off screen. To my fellow TV enthusiasts, I hope you enjoy listening. This week's guest is the LBC radio host, James O'Brien. James grew up in Kidderminster in the 1970s and 80s with his adoptive parents, Joan and Jim O'Brien. He attended Ampleforth College, the famous Catholic public school in Yorkshire. In 2018, the school was named in a report into historic child abuse. He describes his school years as rebellious, but reflects that the weird burning sense of injustice he felt was pretty well placed. Following in his father's footsteps, James pursued a career in journalism and got his foot in the door thanks to a chance encounter with John Major. Although he started out in print, he later segued into broadcast, starting his LBC show in 2004. In this episode, we discuss the impossibility of impartiality, what he thinks of Nigel Farage's appearance on I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here, and receiving hate on social media. One of the great advantages I have is that the people who really hate me are, are mostly disgusting racists. Yeah. So, so it actually becomes quite easy to convert it into a badge of honour. Plus, we discuss imposter syndrome, being not a very good journalist, and what he gets up to on Christmas Day. James O'Brien, welcome to the Radio Times podcast. Thank you for having me. I'd ask how your journey was, but I already know it was swift. It's swift and moist. And moist, yes. It's a very rainy, miserable day, isn't it? We're going to go everywhere with this conversation. It's going to be telechat, which... I hear you like telly. I love television. Yeah, this yeah. surprised me. Did it? Yeah, I almost feel like because of your job, everything you're going to consume is going to be quite serious. No, 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 no. no, no. no. Right, no. let's start with, firstly, what is the view from your sofa? Talk me through your living room setup. Well, we're, we're, I mean, slightly annoyingly for these purposes, we're in the middle of building work at the moment. So 
So we've got a kind of makeshift sitting room. There's a grand piano in there, which sounds very grand. Yes. But, but we inherited that. That came with the house because it turns out it's more expensive to get rid of a grand piano than it is to let the people buying the house in which the previous owners installed it uh, keep it. <laughs> it's, it's very old. Yeah. So that's there. And the tet to my left of the sofa. And then there's another sofa to my right. And the telly is sort of perched precariously on a bookcase, on a built-in bookcase. This is at the moment. God knows what it's going to be like when, when, if we ever finish. Um, and it means that all four of us can sit in sort of quite close proximity with a, with a big round coffee table in front of us for eating off or, or for keeping drinks on. And you can close the curtains and it becomes a very cozy little den, mm. ideal for TV immersion. Could we treat our listeners to some of your Christmas Day happenings. So could you talk me through? I'm I going to confess something that I, might get me into trouble. But if we go to my in-laws for Christmas, <laughs> I don't get sprouts. And I start getting cross about this in about mid-November. I start saying <laughs> to my wife, do you think they'll do sprouts this year? And my wife will say, I don't know. Ask them. I said, I can't ask them. I don't want One year they did a sprout coleslaw. Can you believe that? On Christmas Day, a sprout coleslaw. That's vile. So, so I'm already I'm already thinking about that. My daughters are still of an age where they will enjoy opening their presents on Christmas Day, but happily they won't come and jump on my head at four o'clock in the morning <laughs> in expectation of opening them. I love giving presents. I don't know why. I, I, I really, really love treating people to special presents, and it gets very hard to, to, to get the right presents as... As the, as the children get older, but yeah, Christmas is is a is a really lovely day. I, I'm magical about Christmas, and it will involve. Well, I was going to say a slap up feed with all the trimmings, but there is obviously one trimming that will be overlooked, noticed, notable only by its absence. But 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 a slap up feed, presents, and that lovely. You never feel quite as full as you do at six o'clock on Christmas Day, do you? Delightful. And then, of course, we'll have to find out what's on the telly. Yes. Any any Crucial. TV watching that you return to year and year? I, I used to, I mean, younger people find it impossible to imagine what it was like to just check the Radio Times and see if The Wizard of Oz was on, to, <laughs> or to see when it was on, because it was almost always on, but it would be on at different times. Some, some One year it might be on December the 30th. Another year they might be on BBC Two at six o'clock on Boxing Day. So I would always, always want to watch The Wizard of Oz when I was young, and I still will. As a, a, as a kid, the only Fools and Horses Christmas specials were second only to Mass as religious events. Uh, but there's nothing quite like that anymore, is there? There's nothing quite as appointment to watch as a, as an only Fools and Horses Christmas special. I wow. love a Christmas special. Oh, yeah. So do you watch together? Who gets try control? Try to. It's a big thing of mine mm. to try to find things that we can watch together. But it is, I wouldn't say it was a losing battle, but it's a very difficult battle because my daughters watch in eight-hour chunks. They will inhale <laughs> yeah. a box out. I'll say, how are you getting on with that, that show? And she'll go, yeah, I'm on series four. Yep, and I'll say, nice. but you only started watching it on Monday. So that's very different. They're also, of course, that generation are allergic to what I recently discovered we're supposed to call linear television. So so the idea that there's an appointment to view, which yes. was absolutely integral to me growing up, to, to our family viewing, you know, if it's Friday, it's five o'clock, it's Cracker Jack. But they're, 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 obviously they don't do that as well because most shows drop in their entirety. But there mm. are a few that, that fit into the category. So traditions at the moment would involve, we like British crime dramas quite 
um, quite gentle <laughs> crime dramas. So we watch Midsummer Murders together, if there's a new Midsummer Murders, or even actually old ones. But again, my daughters run ahead of me and end up watching all of them before we've got around to reconvening. And we love Death in Paradise. Ralph Little is actually a mate of mine, so he's very kindly when the girls were sort of just young enough to be amazed by this kind of thing, he'd record a little message for them from the set. On oh, the, that's and, very and, sweet. And just, I'd surprise them with it just before the new series started, and they couldn't quite calculate how the character was also yeah. on, their, on my phone screen and then <laughs> appearing 10 minutes later on television. And that was, uh, that was linear. That was always dropping, a new episode dropping at the same time. And then on Monday nights, we do what I imagine quite a lot of families do, and we do the the triple quiz run together. So we do Mastermind University Challenge and Only Connect. How do you and get on? They're, they're pretty well, actually. I mean, Only Connect is a is the interesting one. It took me a while to get into that. Yeah. I kind of knew I should be into it mm -hmm. because of all the people who raved about it being yes. people who I sort of admire or feel simpatico with. And, and I'm finally getting the hang of it now, but I'm nowhere near good enough to to appear on it. Um, I'm good at general knowledge. I'm good on the other two. I've done the celebrity versions of Mastermind and University Challenge um, very much enthusiastically. And, and the rest of the family like piling in on that as well. So that's become a bit of a tradition in, in recent months, which has been lovely. Yeah, it's really nice, I think, when you have something that means you can all get together. And Special. actually, you know, I grew up with terrestrial telly and watching you know strictly on a Saturday and having that evening time together and actually it becomes kind of the TV is as the heart of almost like a fire yes in some exactly ways. that yes I, we did go we went through phases of strictly this series hasn't engaged as much again Krishnan is a, is a pal of mine so I've watched his adventures with with great interest and and Amanda Abington as well who of course pulled out early but the kids haven't really engaged with this episode i don't know why sometimes they yeah. do sometimes they don't but that's the classic example of good old-fashioned saturday night tv isn't it and uh, you know if you can get that right then you've got all generations gathered around yeah i read once i don't mm. know if this is true i read once that the television plays the role of a, of a fire in the sort of in the, in the neanderthal part of our minds for men not for women so men would return mm -hmm. from a hard day's hunter gathering and they would just sit and stare at the fire while the women got on with the business of looking after the children or preparing whatever the men had hunted and gathered. Don't look at me like that. This is proper history. No, no. This I'm, is proper no, anthropology. I think, and I think so, Stephen Fry said, told me... Did he something similar? Yes. Oh, well, it must be true. Uh, yeah, no, Absolutely. No, copper bottom guarantee there, vindication. <laughs> and, and it doesn't matter what's on mm. for a man. You can just stare at the flickering lights and still feel a degree of succor and, 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 and calm that I think my wife finds hard to understand. She'll say, what are you watching? And I can reasonably reply quite often, I've got no, no idea. idea. No I'm idea just lost all. it. What yes. do you think about um, celebrities going on these kind of quiz shows or panel shows? We've just heard that Farage is going on I'm a Celeb. Oh, that's very different from going on yeah. uh, Mastermind or, or, or University Challenge. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm deeply troubled by Enoch Powell Tribute Act being taken as a, as, a, as a, I mean, a valid contributor to public discourse, let alone a suitable candidate for light entertainment. But that's the way the country's gone in recent years. And, and, and it, it can sometimes feel like a lonely battle to oppose it. But it will be, I don't think I'll be watching it. But um, it's yeah. hard to think of anyone who suffered profound reputational damage by going on that show, mm. which is odd when you think about it, because we tune in expecting people to shame themselves or embarrass themselves. Yeah. But even Matt Hancock, 
can come out with his reputation temporarily enhanced. So, uh, so I, I, I doubt that anyone hoping that, it, that his mask slips or the real Farage emerges. I, I, I suspect they'll be disappointed. Yeah. What about radio? Do you listen to lots of radio shows? What would be your favourite? Well, that's a tricky question because you would expect me to praise my colleagues to the rafters, but my favourite radio show is probably Desert Island Discs and, and, and then The Archers. So it's the Sunday morning omnibus and then Lauren Laverne, who I think does a brilliant job on Desert Island Discs. I'm also a big fan of, of radio drama, which okay. is an acquired taste. Not everybody likes that, but a really good dramatisation on the radio can can take you away you know that the, the, it's a bit of a cliche but the pictures are better on the radio and if you're mm. listening to you know a dramatization of, of, of a of a dickens or an alexandre dumas or something where you really get caught up in the action you can just close your eyes and see it all unfolding in front of you i love doing that and that of course sometimes makes long journeys fly by as well so mm. I, I listen to a lot of speech radio i i, I think chris moyles on radio x is fantastic, but obviously I have to get across the news in the morning, so I yeah. can't. I can't listen to music radio as much as perhaps I would do if I didn't have this mm. stupid job. The job is intense. Do you feel like you always have to have your finger on the cultural pulse? Not really. My dad was a newspaper journalist, so radio in the car would have been the Today programme on Radio 4 when, when he still drove me to school every day, which was only until I was about 10. But it gets stuck in your DNA, doesn't it? It gets, mm. it gets kind of part of your muscle memory. So I would always have some form of news on in the morning on the way to work. I stopped when things just got too bleak. Yeah, I kind of COVID. I stopped, and some of the post Brexit period, I stopped. I just thought I can go on air. I know what's going on, and I've, I've, I've from a very early age had a facility with newspapers where I can I can inhale what's in the papers without necessarily reading it all. So I've generally got a fairly good idea by about quarter to ten in the morning of what's going on in the world, um, and and from those pickings, we'll decide what we're going to talk about on the radio program. Did you watch Partygate? On Channel 4? No, I didn't. I, 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 I mean, it's there. I keep meaning to watch it. But I, I always enjoy things like that once I actually watch them. Mm. But it's a bit like, it's not a busman's holiday exactly, but yeah. it's certainly not escapism. Mm -hmm. And most of my viewing choices would probably get filed under escapism. And yet then when I do do something a little bit more nourishing or, or a little bit more substantive, then I I'd, I'd almost always enjoy it. It's just that initial... Yeah, I that agree. initial leap up to the to the to the deep end rather than yeah. the slightly shallower end where I like to spend most of my time. <laughs> we did a a study recently um, called the Radio Time Screen Test, and what came out I think is is not really that much of a surprise in the sense that people who engage more often with news mm. um, tend to feel very anxious afterwards. Mm. But obviously, if you are so heavily involved in in the news or you have to be so on it in terms of knowing yeah. what's going on and you can't really take an escape how do you deal with that and how do how do you make sure that doesn't become too taxing well i i, I think possibly there's a bit of exposure therapy in play here kellyanne because i i'm exposed to it so much mm. that it doesn't really discombobulate me I, I i think it's probably one of those things like working in a chocolate factory yeah where you're supposed to go off chocolate aren't you after about <laughs> about the first week in on the production line so it doesn't really it's not it, i suppose it's a form of detachment in that you you can't stop seeing the stories as human you can't stop seeing the people in the news as human but generally, it, 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 you can keep a little bit of emotional distance from it so you don't end up feeling 
anxious or discombobulated. There are exceptions. You know, recent events in the Middle East, which we covered more or less uninterrupted for two weeks straight, takes a proper psychic. If you're doing a job properly, it takes a proper psychic toll. Uh, when we covered the, the Grenfell Tower tragedy, I, I was at the BBC, and they're very good at offering counselling to journalists and production staff who are dealing with human misery and tragedy on the kind of scale that nobody should have to. We're, we're journalists. We're not emergency services or, or, or uh, you know, people in the very, very front line of trauma. But it doesn't mean that you won't be traumatised. But these mm. are exceptional events. Uh, yeah. The general day-to-day -day diet of news doesn't really affect me deeply. Did you take them up on that offer? Of counselling, not for yeah. that. I, th I was already having therapy, so I didn't particularly need the uh, specific offer of counselling. And I was coping with it pretty well because my show is about talking, mm. uh, not just reporting. So if you're doing a news, uh, news night is different, but I was doing the radio show at the same time as well. If you're talking to people who've been caught up in it, there's a therapeutic element to that conversation, i.e. you can work through a lot of the emotions and you can talk about a lot of the things that you can't when you're doing a straight news report. The hard yeah. thing about news reporting is is is, is objectivity, it's distance. I, I couldn't be a, it's hard to say this without sounding like I'm criticizing the people who do it, but I don't think I am capable of watching a, 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 a starving child, for example, without wanting to give them all my dinner. Do you, do you yeah. see what I mean? And I, I don't think I could do that job Whereas I can talk to people about what it has been like to lose someone or to escape from Grenfell and um, and therefore go to slightly different places than mm. you would if you were a straight news reporter. Yeah. In terms of conversations, I listened to the Wreath Lectures last year, which Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie did, and she was talking about the kind of freedom of speech and how she feels as a society we have become so polarized that sometimes we aren't even able to have a conversation with each other for fear of saying the wrong thing or for saying something that doesn't align with our political camp. How important is it through things like your show that we are engaging and actively having these conversations? I, 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 I mean, I think we sometimes get a bit carried away on this argument these days because what a lot of people, if you're looking at the Donald Trump style demands for free speech. They're, they're often demanding the right to tell lies unchallenged, uh, yeah. you know, and they don't pretend otherwise. Kellyanne Conway yeah. talks about alternative facts. And you can see what happens when you treat the babblings of QAnon or the January the 6th incitements of Donald Trump as if they were evidence-based or fact-based. An entire population can be corrupted. So it's a bit unfashionable, but I, I think we allow too much freedom of speech into the public space without properly policing whether it's you know observably true or not mm. and the british equivalent of that would probably be boris johnson dancing around claiming that he'd got all the big calls right during covid when we have discovered if you didn't know already during the covid inquiry that that the precise opposite was true he got almost everything wrong and then you move into the area that, that i think you're probably talking about more directly which is offense and the right to cause offence, which is obviously something that needs to be protected up to a point. But I, again, I don't think we stop often enough to ask why you want to cause offence. Why are you yeah. so keen to malign the Black Lives Matter movement? Why do you want to be free to say that people born under a different star or born under a different religion or born with a different skin tone to you are, are, are not properly British? Or I, I just, I, I mean, by all means, 
remind me of why it's important that you have the right to say it, but explain to me as well why you're so desperate to all the time. It just seems mm. quite an odd way to go about living. They say, I mean, a lot of the articles that I read in preparation for this have Yikes. kind of, oh, thanks, <laughs> I did my research. They weave into it often this phrase, which is that you are very good at shutdowns and these mm. shutdowns take off online and on social media. Do you think that you do? Less so recently. I think uh, when I became, what, whatever word you prefer, well-known, I'd been doing the job for, for well over a decade before mm. anybody really noticed me to be honest. And it was largely in the aftermath of Brexit that the that the spotlight kind of found me a bit as a consequence of technology. We just had the cameras in the studio. I think they introduced the cameras for other presenters who would be interviewing politicians or on the music stations. They'd have Taylor Swift coming in or, 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 or Ed Sheeran and they, they were going to be clipped up mm. and then packaged for social media. And they were the ones that were supposed to go viral. But to everyone's surprise, most of all mine, <laughs> me, me just sort of ranting at the moon with no one else in the studio was yeah. was the stuff that first hit the sort of million view marks and stuff mm. like that. And then the callers would ring in and it's not a shutdown. It's in many ways, it's the opposite of a shutdown. Although I'm perfectly comfortable with the with the word, it, it, it's something that doesn't happen much in the media. And it ties back to what we were saying a moment ago about observable reality and provable truth. Someone would say to me with their full chest, something that I thought was nonsense. And I would just ask yeah. them to justify what it was that they'd said. So mm. in the context of Brexit, it would be most obviously, it would be, why do you want to leave? Because because I want, I'm want i sick of all the laws. I'm sick of all the laws that the and EU has introduced. And I would simply say, well, what laws are you most looking forward to saying goodbye to? And, yeah. and someone would just stop. And it's astonishing that the discourse in the country had never once paused to interrogate this catchphrase it had become yeah. a catchphrase there'd be people dancing around television studios you know politicians and pundits issuing this phrase without ever once being stopped to explain what they meant by it mm. so when a member of the public comes on the show and repeats it they're not really expecting to be asked to do something that their political heroes haven't been asked to do but as soon as you say it it, it, it falls apart in spectacular fashion and i think people quite like the the jeopardy of it and the silence of it sometimes, you know, when you can hear somebody going, oh, God, how have I ended up live on the radio with absolutely nothing to yeah. offer up in response to a really, really simple question. So they're not shutdowns in the sense that I'm smashing people over the head with my opinions or my knowledge. They're, they're, mm. they're kind of exercises in giving people enough enough rope and um, and it doesn't happen as much as it used to because we've partly we've moved away from Brexit and partly I think you know, without being immodest, you're unlikely to be listening to my program without knowing my modus operandi. Whereas for a while, I think I got away with, <laughs> I got away with inviting people to ring in who, who didn't know quite what was going to happen when they did. Yeah, I think it's really interesting asking people to unpick things that we have come to believe are facts yeah. and aren't. Yes, it's extraordinary. Even this week, someone rang in to praise. Uh, the, the the reappointment of David Cameron by, by Rishi Sunak because he's got such a good foreign policy record, which I've also read this week. But I said, what what's on it? What's on his foreign policy? What are his great foreign policy achievements? And the poor fellow was, well, he won, he 
be won an election. I said, that's not really a foreign policy achievement. <laughs> so, but there, you know, these things get into the public vocabulary and I'm fascinated by whether or not they should actually be there. Yeah, and we don't really question it. And that's when the mad stuff happens. That's when the crazy stuff happens. You know, that's when the alternative facts are treated with the same respect and uh, authority as the actual facts. Mm. And, it, and it's, it's what happens when you, you get people in studios um, offering up two sides of an argument where sometimes it seems, particularly at the Beeb, even if you had someone who believed that the, the earth was round, they'd have to book someone who yeah. believes the earth was flat for, for what they like to call balance, which, again, I think is a bit bonkers. So you left the news night and mm. that was in, in part because of your... It wasn't in part. It was it entirely was. because I couldn't really sustain... The, the three issues at the time that I needed to be opinionated about in all my other work were Brexit, Donald Trump and Boris Johnson. So now that all three of those have turned out so fantastically, I obviously feel very stupid. What about impartiality? How easy do you think that is now? Well, how can you be impartial on whether or not Donald Trump and Boris Johnson are fit people to to, to run governments? It's not mm. a question of impartiality. It's a, it's a question of counting. It's a, but, but you are required to be. Um, and in Britain, a lot of the policing of that is done by right-wing newspapers. So you can have a background in, in right-wing student politics or you can publish a very right-wing magazine and no one's got a problem with you presenting programs on mm. the BBC. But there's a chap in, in my new book who was a 25, is a 25-year-old fact-checker on his first ever shift on the daily politics. And the next day he's in every newspaper, every right-wing newspaper in the country because he once uploaded a picture of his dog to a Facebook page called Dogs for Jeremy Corbyn. And this is apparently proof that he can't be trusted to be impartial. But then there's a, you know, a significant number of people who've got clear right-wing histories and right-wing connections who can. So it's even that's bogus. You should be able to do a job for the BBC regardless of what your opinions are. The, mm. prob the problem is that only people with opinions, suspected opinions, that the, the Daily Mail or the Daily Telegraph is comfortable with, avoid the kind of scrutiny and spotlight that's directed at people like Emily Maitlis or, or, yeah. or Lewis Goodall. And it's just an obvious injustice. It's an obvious imbalance, which again, people seem shy of talking about. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Can we... 
journey back to your mm. childhood and talk about, you said at the beginning that TV watching was a family affair. What's your first TV memory? I tell you, I used to, I think laughing, finding things my dad found funny, funny. So moving from, <laughs> moving from cartoons to dad would laugh at something and, and I would find it funny too. And that's a magical moment because mm. you have that sense of growing up and that sense of camaraderie with 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 your parents as well my i don't know what my very earliest television memory would be i i more morning than evening i i remember the school holidays when why don't you would be on why don't you turn off your television set and go and do something less boring instead and we had this weird little cubby hole under the stairs which looking back that was obviously where mum and dad would stick me and my sister to sort of keep us out of the way and and we'd be glued to the the telly in there and there was a few programs on in the mornings during the school holidays that you'd just be transported by so that's quite an early memory and then I remember my dad laughing while I was in bed so I'd be upstairs in bed and his laughter would come through the floorboards and that would be the two Ronnies or Morecambe and Wise mm -hmm. I remember Morecambe and Wise because that bridges the gap in a way Eric Morecambe is a classic clown and so that bridges the gap from cartoons to mm. adult, you know, actual humans doing funny things. So, you know, you, it's hard to remember whether you actually remember it or just whether you've seen it so many times since. But when Eric Morgan would slap Ernie Wise around the chops or that famous moment with Andre Prevan, stuff like that. And then I remember a joke. I don't know how old I was, but it was the Jasper Carrot Show. And it was a, it was a, it was a joke that I got and I got it properly. And I forget how old I was, but I was young. And it was someone based on Prince Charles who'd arrived at university with his bodyguard and was standing on the balcony smoking a cigarette, I think, and waxing lyrical about how wonderful university life was. And he, he said to his bodyguard, why didn't you go to university, Perkins? And his bodyguard replied, I got the same A-level grades as you, sir. And I just remember thinking <laughs> that, that I get that. That's really funny. And, I, and it's also quite political. And it's yeah. got, you know, there's quite a lot going on in that joke. And, and that's quite an early memory of, of understanding grown-up comedy. And I told that story on the radio about 15 <laughs> years ago. And the bloke that wrote the joke was listening, which is remarkable because back then there were only about 200,000 people a week tuning in. And he was actually one of them. And he sent me an email and it was, you know, it was all kosher. And I, just, I don't know why that just tickled me pink. It was, yeah, it was, a, there was a lovely sort of symmetry to it. Full circle. Yeah. So you were adopted yeah. as a baby. Yeah. Were you told from the off? Yes. Yeah, I never didn't know, which I think, I, I, again, you don't want to sit in judgment on other people's choices, but certainly from the point of view of my emotional security, mm -hmm. it seems to me to be the very best way to deal with it. You, ne you never don't know. So in that sense, it's never actually that big a deal to yeah. you. It might be to other people. It is, yeah. it remains, but other people are fascinated by it. But yes. to my sister and I, it's the most normal thing in the world. Your sister is adopted mm. too. Mm. Right. So tell me a little bit about home life. What were you like as a child? Mm. I was a terrible show off, which will become <laughs> as a major shock, I'm sure, to anyone who's familiar with my work. Real look at me, mum, look at me, mum, look at me, mum kind of kid. Be out on my bike a lot. We started boarding at 10, so weekly boarding at 10. So then you have you live this strange dichotomy where... Yeah, you know, you're at home for only half of the year or, or, or a small part of the year. But before that, uh, yeah, lovely, idyllic childhood, lots of telly, 
Lots of football in the garden, lots of knocking on neighbours' doors asking if they were coming out to play, lots of bike riding. Mm. We moved to a little slightly more rural area when I was a little older and, and I, I'd disappear for hours on end. I'd, uh, I, could, I could really enjoy my own company then. I'd get on my bicycle with a packet of sandwiches and I'd cycle as far as I could eat the sandwiches and then cycle back. And I used to love doing that kind of thing. It's very sweet. It was sweet. It was, it was um, I mean, the problem with boarding school is that your friends don't live near you in the holidays. Mm. And as the years pass, you lose touch with the friends that you had from the area. Yeah. So you had to enjoy your own company in the holidays. And then in term time, the opposite was the case because you were living cheek by jowl with, you know, uh, 500 other lads. So you, you'd get very little time to yourself. So quite a... Quite a dual, a duality of experience, but I was, I was I was essentially quite a happy kid, never more so than when I was sitting in front of the telly. So it was Ampleforth College. Mm. What was it like for you? Spartan. It was, I mean, very oddly Spartan. Um, I, I, I was quite rebellious against teachers, uh, and looking back, rightly so. Actually, it yeah. was, you know, it was a fairly cliched anti-authoritarian streak, but uh, you know, without going into too much detail there were some pretty terrible things going on at that school at the time they didn't happen to me the, the worst things but it was clear that this curious combination of scholastic and divine authority was empowering men to do terrible things to children and and I lived most of my life at Ampleforth with a weird burning sense of injustice mm. a real us versus them kind of attitude which obviously got me into quite a lot of trouble and was sometimes quite misplaced but um, but as I say, in in retrospect, it, it, it was pretty well placed most of the time. I didn't like I didn't like compulsory sport, which is one of the great regrets of my life. So my more cliched rebellion sort of segued into refusing to do things that I was required to do. So compulsory rugby turned me off, and yet I, I wasn't that bad at rugby, and I really liked it. But it just you know, like a stubborn kid I'd, I'd i'd get out of it all the time i'd fake injuries or i'd hide in the art room or i just wouldn't go because it was compulsory and that, that now that i'm too old and my knees are shot i can't i'm never going to have that kind of second wind or that third age i really 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 regret that and and partly as well because rugby was a religion at my school you know you could um, I, I used to win public speaking competitions on a national level and nobody gave a monkeys. And I, I got into the National Youth Theatre and nobody gave a fig. But if you got a call up as for a trial to play rugby for Yorkshire, you were carried on, the, on, the, on your friend's shoulders through the school. And I always thought that was pretty unfair as well because it's much harder to get into the yeah. National Youth Theatre than it was to get a trial for bloody Yorkshire. But <laughs> hey-ho, Lawrence Delalli I did all right and he, he played rugby at our school. Where did the idea of journalism come from? I want, my dad was a journalist. My dad was a newspaper journalist and I never really wanted to do anything else except possibly act and then a vague political ambition when I was very young, but I grew out of that quite quickly. Um, so newspapers uh, and um, perhaps a little bit unimaginatively, actually, I just thought I'd follow my dad into his profession, which wasn't easy and uh, was selling suits on Regent Street having been turned down for every traineeship under the sun. And John Major bought a white suit off us. And I gave the story to the William Hickey column at the Daily Express. And when they offered to pay me money, I asked for a couple of shifts instead. And I, I got my foot in the door and never left. And that, that's how it all started. But much to my shock and dismay, I wasn't very good at it. I, 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 I can write yeah, and I can talk. 
and talking in conference, in editorial conference, can be quite a big substitute for actually being a good journalist. So my dad was a proper news journalist right. with contacts, shorthand, uh, lots of time on the road. I just couldn't do I just, I couldn't, I didn't recognize stories. So I kind of, blagged isn't quite the right word, but I ended up show business editor, God knows how. And I never got the hang of it. I'd open the Daily Mail. I was on the Daily Express. I'd open the Daily Mail some mornings and I'd see a story on page three, which for a showbiz editor is, you know, the holy grail. That's what you're aiming for. We need a three. The news editor would say, we need a three. And I'd open the, and I'd see what the Daily Mail had got on page three and I'd go, oh no, I knew that. I knew that. I didn't realize it was a story. I was absolutely rubbish. Uh, there was one, uh, one occasion, but uh, the ITV had a chart show like Top of the Pops. It didn't last that long, but it was identical in format. And um, I was down there enjoying the hospitality and the, the, you know, the free booze and the canapes. That bit of the job I was great at. <laughs> and Chris Evans was there and he came out of Jerry Halliwell's dressing room. And I remember thinking, oh, that's nice. It's good that they're friends. And of course, the next day, every other newspaper had the burgeoning romance between Chris Evans and Jerry Halliwell. And I sat there staring at it, going, I think you're in the wrong game, mate. I yeah. really, this, if you, you know, that was under your nose. How could you possibly have missed that? But I did. So, <laughs> so when, when the, uh, there the, is nothing worse. No, it's an awful feeling. Yeah. And then at the other bit of the job, which is even more traumatic, is when the news editor, the night editor will ring you at about midnight and just start shouting at you because uh, other papers have got stories that you should have. You're so, and he was a lovely bloke, actually. Some of the news editors I worked for were, were not, but the night editor was a lovely fella, and I just used to apologize to him. I went through a period of claiming that everybody else was making it all up. That, that, I got away with that for a while. It's just yeah. not true. I said, it's just not true, Terry. Seriously, trust me. It's just not true. <laughs> I've spoken to Elton's people. It's all a load of nonsense. But that it can't be true of every single mm. story that you failed to get. So yeah. it wasn't a very long period of my career. But looking back, it felt like centuries. So it was just a constant battle against my own incompetence. You said that your dad didn't have the easiest ride as a journalist. That makes me think, A, why... Did you want to go into it? Well, he didn't. He didn't. It wasn't so much that he didn't have an easy ride. It's that he, he kind of topped out in a way that people who go to schools like mine don't, you know. He didn't move to London and then he got made redundant in 1990 by the Daily Telegraph and he didn't want to move to London. So what I've said about that is that after that period, mm. things it, it, it weren't great for him. I think he, he he needed to be on a big paper. It was part of his identity. And I didn't, when I lost him, I, I, I remember thinking, I don't want to be like that. I, I, don't, I don't want to have too much of my self-worth tied up in my job. But as, as a journalist, he did great. I mean, he came up via a route that doesn't exist anymore from, from weekly papers to evening papers to morning yeah, regional papers to national newspapers. It's how people got good as well. Yeah, absolutely, it and is. And that's how you, that's why there were so many brilliant journalists. And, and not to say that there aren't great journalists now, but it is also, like you say, it's no longer getting your foot in, you know, to get your foot in at a lower level in terms of more regional, it's mm. easier than now it feels very oh, much very who you know, what you yeah, know. Well, not even, yeah, well, partly that. And also talking a good game, you know, so mm. how Boris Johnson can end up writing news reports that he just has made up. Uh, anyone who was in Brussels with him will tell you he just made stuff up. And it, it, that was the same paper 
that my dad was on. So it's a mark of the decline, really, in all of British newspapers, but the Daily Telegraph in particular. What do you think is the future of news as we know it? I don't know, really. I, th- I think increasingly it's um, a plaything of the super rich. You know, we should treasure the exceptions like the BBC and The Guardian, run by the Scott Trust, the Financial Times, which manages to plough a very independent furrow. But almost all of the rest of it, even the Mirror now, of course, is owned by the same people that own the Express. But um, it does seem to be an exercise in buying influence. Uh, I suppose Rupert Murdoch has created that template and a lot of other media owners have moved into it. The thing that gives me hope is the technology that allows people to build their own platforms, which isn't mm. it hasn't happened on, on the scale that it might do yet. But I, I, I think that, you know, you can do everything, can't you now, from yeah. you, making films. I, I, can, I can see a YouTube influencer doing news mm. or doing comment or talking about current affairs. I, 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 I'm not fully au fait with the world to know how many people are doing it already. But that wasn't an option when I was in my teens or my 20s. Yes, and, and, and I think you've got it with print. The internet lets you get to places that previously you never could have reached. Where, you know, And then you've got the the organs that might let you do it, like Substack. Uh, but but I but I think that if if I was thirty years younger, I'd be very interested in 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 cutting out the employer and trying to find a way of getting directly to the consumer. Mm, that's very interesting. Do you think also with social media, obviously it gives people a direct line to you? Mm. Do you think if you're going to do that or if you're going to speak directly, you have to be thicker skinned? Well, it depends on how much of it you see. It is optional. Mm, I, I, so when you start out and, and when Twitter first kicked off, I'd get into really quite lengthy rows with people who, in retrospect, weren't really worth the time of day. It's it's not natural at first to mm-hmm. walk past a door and you know people are talking about you on the other side of that door. It's not natural yeah. to carry on walking. Yeah. It's a human impulse to put your ear to the keyhole and find out what they're saying. Yeah. But if you reach a point in uh, as a media figure where every door you walk past, there's a chance that there's going to be people on the other side of it talking about you, then the, the urge to find out what they're saying diminishes pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So I would once have searched my own name on, on Google and uh, possibly even on Twitter quite regularly but hand on heart i cannot remember well i've got a book out at the moment so i'm checking for reviews and 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 comments on on online but i i haven't searched for my name randomly for god knows how long absolutely years and if you use the um safety functions responsibly you you kind of manage to steer clear of most of the really mad unhinged nastiness but yeah if you're starting out and you're going to get into the business of offering up opinions for money yeah and then, then i'm afraid the price that you're going to have to pay for that is receiving pungent opinions in return from people who aren't getting paid does it ever get to you um no no I, I mean it must have done at some point but one of the great advantages i have is that the people who really hate me are, are mostly disgusting racists yeah so, so it actually becomes quite easy to convert it into a badge of honor I, I mean, I, I worry for my kids sometimes. I, I, I don't like the idea of them being exposed to some of the bile that might come in my direction, more so from people in the business perhaps than from sort of random members of the public. But mm-hmm. but no, it, I mean, it's a fairly 
clear trade-off between yeah. all the amazing stuff that has happened to me career-wise. And if the price you pay for that is getting called names by Billy Buncher numbers with a bulldog yes. avatar and a Nigel Farage poster on his bedroom wall, then I can live with that. Yeah. How did you get into broadcast? Mostly by accident. So I said I was good at talking. <laughs> you when, are good at when talking. When I was not very good at being a journalist. But what happens is you get invited onto TV and radio to talk about stuff. And now initially, as a showbiz journalist, I'd be invited on to talk about Liam Gallagher's divorce from Patsy Kensett or something like that, about which I knew absolutely nothing. But of course, <laughs> as, as, as most people I'm sure suspect, almost everybody on the telly talking about things knows nothing more than the people at home watching it do, that we're just a little bit better at um, seeming plausible and seeming informed. So, if you know, you're good at that. And then they invite you on to do a paper review mm -hmm. or, or they invite you on to um, talk about something that is a little bit out of your purview, out of your speciality area. So I just started doing that and I, I really liked it. They give you some money and they send a car for you and your mum back in Kidderminster can hear you on the radio or see you on breakfast television was always a big one for mum. So I used to really enjoy doing all of that. And, and then someone came along and said, we're launching a new program. And we'd like you to co-present it. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And they said, it's based in Norwich. So you would have to give up the, the the newspaper job. And I was just reaching the point where I had those moments of going, I think you're in the wrong game, mate. Mm -hmm. And it happened very nicely. So we launched a show called The Right Stuff for Channel 5 with Anglia Television about whew, more than 20 years ago now. And uh, and and then that was, that, that was it. That was how I got started. And was that successful? I think so. I, I mean, it was an odd one. Um, I, I did it with Matthew and a woman called Kate Silverton, who who, who was latterly a, a newsreader at the BBC, and we had a really good time. And then we got caught up in politics, like media politics, not politics politics, and Granada mm. bought the company. Anglia was, you know, being wound down a bit by Granada. The show moved back to London. They changed the format so that... Kate and I had been on it every day, and now they wanted a more rotating panel, which I, 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 that hurt my ego a bit. Um, so it kind of that just sort of petered out, and then I, I did a couple of bits and bobs before LBC came along. So, uh, so yeah, it was it was it was it was a popular show, and it was a bit ahead of its time. It, you know, you can't turn the telly on now without seeing some discussion show, mm -hmm. uh, some sort of uh, dare I say some slightly manufactured row being conducted by, by by people on the telly. I, I like to think we, we, we sort of steered clear of some of the cheaper tactics on that program and, and did actually make, make, make shows that were a little bit more nourishing. And then it just happened very quickly and then it disappeared very quickly. So I did that and then they wanted to do an evening politics show for the, the, the second Blair election, so 2002 or one. And they said, will you front that one? And you need a co-presenter and so I did it with my wife, Lucy. Who's also a journalist? Yeah, yeah, very much. Uh, not so much now, but she was then. And it just it all seemed so easy. Mm -hmm. And then they offered me a chat show. So I did a regional chat show for ITV, which was, was quite exciting, called A Night with O'Brien with a K, because the Anglia television famous symbol was this big silver knight that used to spin around on a, on a sort of podium. The Nicholas Parsons sale of the century you're too young for this but I go now live from Norwich it's the show of the week and this was again part of my childhood and I just kept getting offered all this stuff and then Channel 5 said would you make a documentary and then my pure Alan Partridge moment Channel 5 came to watch the recording of the ITV 
chat show and the head of entertainment, Light Entertainment, said, oh, would you make a pilot for us? This is really good. We'd like this to go national. So we made a pilot for that. He came to watch it. Friday night, it was. Finished the record. It's never seen the light of day. Finished the record. And he said that night, right, we need to change the contracts. I want to put this out on air. It's, it's, it's definitely broadcast quality. And we are commissioning a series of chat shows presented by you. I think I was 28, 29 maybe, Goodness. just 30. Presented by you for national network television. And I, I, I remember having quite a good weekend, although there's always a little bit of fear, but imposter syndrome. And then he got fired on Monday morning. So he commissioned the chat show on the Friday night and got, which is, this is like Alan Partridge yeah. script editors would send it back for being too implausible. <laughs> so all of this mad stuff happened in my first year as a broadcaster. And then it stopped dead. I didn't have an agent because I didn't think I needed one because every time I picked up the phone, there was someone offering me a job. And then, boom, it died, absolutely died a death. And so I dealt with it. And I thought, I'm going to have to go back to newspapers then. And my wife said, I don't think you should, which looking back was her polite way of saying, you, you're not very good at it. But instead, she said, oh, I think you're a really natural <laughs> broadcaster. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So we gave it a year. Um, and and, um, uh, and 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 luckily, it, it started happening towards the end of that mm. year. You said there that you felt uh, elements of imposter syndrome. Mm. And that surprises me. Well, that's the public school education. That's, uh, that, that's the, the feet flapping under the water like that, where above the water you can seem very confident and very, very serene. It, it spent years waiting for a tap on the shoulder saying, yeah, right, you've had your fun. Back you get back to measuring inside legs on Regent Street. Who do you think you are swanning around like this? Until relatively recently, actually, probably until I started writing books, which is something I'd always wanted to do. And the show went a bit ballistic in the last four or five years. But until then, yeah, I would have, um, I would definitely have, have, I would have sort of sighed resignedly if mm. I'd run out of road. It wouldn't have come as a major shock to me. Do you think? your parents were interested in kind of job success. You know, if if to think about it in the sense of you're wanting to please parents. No, it was never that. It was always for myself. I think they call it status anxiety. I, I, I always wanted to do well. Mum um, and dad never really put any pressure at all on me, actually. Quite the opposite. When, when I was really struggling to get a gig in journalism, to get my first break in journalism, they, they'd begun the very difficult conversation of, of suggesting perhaps it was time to start thinking about something else. So there was never any... Also, I wasn't one of those kids that could afford to wait for a break. You know, I needed to be earning a living, certainly if I was going to stay in London. Mm. Um, so no, I never... I was entirely placed it on myself, that. Entirely placed it on myself. Let's come on to talk about uh, the book. Why did you want to write this? Simply because so many really stupid things have happened in our country in a relatively short period of time. And I, I, I kind of realized through my radio show and speaking to people and watching things quite closely that this was not a kind of congregation of coincidences. This is not a series of disconnected facts, or dis disconnected events that have all accidentally happened at the same time. There is an ecosystem that has been created in our country that allowed really mad things to happen, like becoming the first population in the history of humanity to vote to impose economic sanctions on itself in 2016, like letting a man like Boris Johnson rise, ascend to the highest office in the land, like having, I mean, when the book was 
commissioned. That was one of the key questions. How did we end up being a place where Boris Johnson could become prime minister? By the time I was finishing it, of course, that had evolved into how did we become a place where Liz Truss could become prime minister and, and swiftly drive the entire economy off a cliff. And and uh, the, the division and the hatred that has grown up in recent years as a consequence of the same ecosystem, the same three engines of, of, of influence, the, 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 the current iteration of the Tory party, which is a very right-wing, very ugly creation, the right-wing media, which has got worse and worse through the course of my adult life, most obviously at the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph and the Murdoch titles, and then these weird so-called think tanks, um, which are basically just secretly funded lobby groups doing the business, representing the interests of big business. And yet they've managed over the course of the last 30 odd years to infiltrate almost every level of the media. And I thought that other people couldn't see what I could see. So I've written it all down. When you're writing a book, obviously it, it doesn't happen overnight. Mm. And when you're in you're such a fast paced political yeah. um, stance, surely things were becoming... Oh, it's a nightmare. Seriously, the introduction, I could still be writing it now. <laughs> and then they'd start doing terrible things. Like I used Dominic Raab and Suella Braverman in the introduction as examples of people who've been horribly, horribly overpromoted and whose careers will almost certainly end in shame and disgrace. Uh, of course, Dominic Raab's career did end in shame and disgrace while I was still writing the introduction. Suella Braverman's career ended in shame and disgrace two weeks after the book was published. So there was yeah. never any... I had to just draw a line. So it came out at the, at the beginning of November, but there's still events in it that were happening in the middle of August, which is almost yeah. unheard of yeah. for a book. And it's why there might be a few typos in it, because <laughs> we simply didn't have time to... Um, I delivered it very late. This wasn't the plan, and, and, and the publishers were very patient with me. But yeah, stuff just kept happening and still is. You know, I, I forget what the first story was that that broke after I really couldn't go back to the text. I was already reading the audio book by this point. The, reading the audio book was the final proof check. And by the time we got to the fourth day of reading the audio book, the publisher said, we've got to press the button at the printers. So for the last quarter of the audio book, I'm coming across mistakes and I'm thinking, oh no, that's already gone to the printers. But none of them are like not libelous, at least, or, <laughs> or like massively, massively damaging. But once you've got the thesis in place, that this is a country where really, really stupid things can happen, really bad, crazy things can happen, and really bad, unqualified, unsuitable people can rise to the very top of politics and 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 and, and other areas. Once that thesis is in place, then there's 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 proof of it every week. There's mm. proof of it every week. I, the COVID inquiry, of course, was in the week that the book came out, and I, 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 the C Cummings gets a chapter and Boris Johnson gets a chapter. And both of those chapters would have been a little bit longer if the COVID inquiry evidence had been given uh, at the beginning of August instead of at the beginning of November. But it's fine. It's there. It's a, it's a historical document full of detail, evidence, and uh, and footnotes. I've never done a book with footnotes before. It made me feel like a proper grown-up. I didn't know that much about think tanks, and there's quite a lot of you know politics that can be really alienating. And that's mm. that's from somebody you know who has an interest who tries to engage. And what I thought was interesting about the book is your ability to expose and to explain I hope so. things that are very complicated and, and events that happened a while ago yeah. that might not have stuck in your head or you might have been too young or yes. they might have, you know, been pushed under the carpet with a lot of other events, you know, yeah, or, or just absolutely. turning your heads in another direction, yes. which is what it seems to do. How difficult do you think it is to condense 
I found it quite straightforward. I think once I'd got my central idea, so the title comes first. Mm -hmm. It was originally going to be called The the Men Who Broke Britain. Mm -hmm. But then they put put Liz Truss in Downing Street. So I couldn't quite keep that title, although the Liz Truss chapter is very, very short. And so then it became how they broke Britain. And once I established that what I'm trying to do is not just list all the bad stuff that's happened, but explain how we created an ecosystem, a country in which it could happen, it was actually quite straightforward. The 10 candidates for chapters presented themselves very easily. There were no sort of close-run 11, 12-place characters. The Mm -hmm. 10 chapters presented themselves very easily. And then something quite magical happened, actually, which I haven't really spoken about before. And I couldn't quite believe it when it was happening. I'd keep finding stuff that proved I was right. So there are moments where you think this this might look a bit conspiratorial or, or this might look a little bit bonkers. But then I'd find out stuff that I hadn't known about or I'd forgotten. And it would prove a thesis of the book so complete, would just fit so perfectly. So, you know, when you do a bibliography at the end of a book like this, it doesn't necessarily mean you've read every single page of every single book in the bibliography you use the index quite a lot so you're looking up for example in a, in a murdoch biography you might look up andrew neil and find out the interactions there in the bit and i just kept finding things that made me go god you're right there really has been part, largely by accident partly by design there's been a convergence on this very right-wing ground and they've dragged the whole country to to where they were and they've done it in many cases deliberately, and in some cases opportunistically, and in mm-hmm. other cases accidentally, but it's all happened. And that's that's why I'm very proud of it, because it's, it's I've, I've kept the receipts. The receipts are all there. It's not just yeah. me, as my previous books were a little bit more personal, a lot more personal. It's not just me offering up an opinion. It's me drawing a map mm. with loads of grid references. It's really interesting, again, because when I first understood the premise, I thought, wow, surely you're worried about libel or saying the wrong thing. So and it begins with the, 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 the boiling frog analogy, the idea that they've turned the heat up so slowly and so incrementally that we haven't noticed what, what, what's been going on around us until we're cooked and we're cooked. Do you think that there is a way to fix? Yes, I do. I mean, the ecosystem might be decades old, but actually the full ramifications of it are relatively recent. And I think of Amber Rudd, at this point, who resigned twice from the cabinet just within the last five years. The first time because she had misled the House of Commons accidentally, inadvertently, over something Theresa May had presided over at the Home Office and she'd been given duff information by civil servants, which she repeated in the House and resigned as a consequence of that. And then she resigned as business secretary under Boris Johnson in protest at the direction of traffic that Johnson and Cummings were taking the party in. Simple, straight resignation of both ministerial office and the whip. Uh, and people forgot that. People forget this. I forgot that. Mm-hmm. And it's not in the book, actually. It's something that I've thought about more. And that was not decades ago. That wasn't 100 years ago. That that was five, six years ago. Less, in fact, in the case of the second resignation, it was four years ago. And that's what normal looks like. So normal can keep the, the madness at bay. Normal 
regulations, standards, rules, abiding by traditions and principles that have been in place for decades. That's what can keep the, the, the potential havoc that this ecosystem can wreak under control. So you take Amber Rudd as an example of what normal looks like. Mm -hmm. Then you take Owen Patterson as an example of what abnormal looks like. And when he's found to have breached lobbying rules, found by you know a, a parliamentary inquiry, the response of the people at the centre of this book, the, the, the Boris Johnsons, the... Jacob Rees-Mogg's, the Charles Moores, their response is to try and get their man off the hook. They literally sat down together around a table at the Garrett Club and said, we've got to start the Save Owen Patterson Society. So the response to a rule breaker from within their own little coterie is to try and get him off the hook and then to set fire to the rule book. Mm -hmm. You know, Rees-Mogg goes to Balmoral to mislead the late Queen about the prorogation of Parliament, but most of the right-wing media is presenting him as some sort of paragon of yeah. penny-farthing virtue. It's 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 insane what, what's gone on. But as long as you stay calm and detail it and write it all down, you realise that the speed with which we've reached critical mass could be emulated. You could get back to a semblance of normality uh, at a similar speed. You've just got to care about the stuff that keeps the bad stuff at bay. And I, and, I, and I think some politicians do. Amber Rudd did. She was a Tory. Keir Starmer does. He's Labour. So I'm a lot more optimistic than I was when I finished the book, actually. Have any of them reached out? No. No. I, I think most of the right-wing media are pretending it, it doesn't exist, although the Daily Telegraph website gave it to Lawrence Fox's girlfriend to review, which I thought was very novel, oh. very novel commissioning. But otherwise, um, I, I think they're pretending it hasn't happened, up to and including the point that it got to number four in the Sunday Times bestseller list in the week of release. So it comes slightly hard, I imagine, to ignore it completely. Well, James O'Brien, thank you so much for coming on the Radio Times podcast. Thank you. I've had a lovely time. If you enjoyed this episode, you might like to listen to my conversation with Sky's political editor, Beth Rigby, or Channel 4's news anchor, Krishnan Guru Murphy. Both can be found by scrolling back through the Radio Times podcast feed. Thank you for listening to the Radio Times podcast with me, your host, Kellyanne Taylor. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please do follow, rate and review wherever you get your podcast from. It helps other TV and film lovers find us. Until next Tuesday, happy viewing. <laughs>